Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I am absolutely delighted to be here with Christian Book, an amazing name, uh, one of my favorite living poets. He is currently running for the Oxford Professor of Poetry, and I'm an alum, so I'll be voting for him. And if you uh, have an Oxford affiliation, I encourage you to do so as well. I'm quite excited um, at, at the prospect that Christian could be a professor there. Um, mainly because he's an experimental poet who really tests the limits of poetry. He's super interdisciplinary. And, you know, Oxford's a relatively conventional place. So I think the opportunity to kind of reinvent Oxford and bring some uh, edginess to that office would, uh, would go a long way. Welcome, Christian. Thank you for being so gracious as to host me on your podcast. I'm very grateful to be here. And, uh, of course, welcome to all of your listeners. Uh, thank you for uh, tuning in. You wrote a book called Unoya. Um, that is a rule-based book of poems in which each chapter features words uh, that have only one vowel from the alphabet in them. So chapter A, chapter E, I, O, U, uh, Y. And those chapters meditate really on the English language. Um, they all, they, they tell a story and there's, there's drama to them, but fundamentally those are poems about language. I'm curious what the impetus was for that book um, what what drew you to write Unoya, and uh, if you have a favorite letter? Thank you, Zohar. I got the idea for Unoya while a graduate student at York University in my early twenties. I was uh, studying with a friend, uh, Darren Wurschler, and he and I ended up uh, founding a literary movement together, uh, a movement called Conceptualism. And at the time, uh, we were reading with interest uh, the work of the French coterie Ulipo, uh, the Ouvoir de Literature Potentielle, a French uh, group that is still ongoing in its contributions to literature, but uh, was founded uh, in the 50s and 60s by a handful of poets and mathematicians interested in the role that procedural constraint might play in our creativity. Uh, they had a interesting hypothesis arguing that uh, creativity stems not so much from uh, liberation from rules, but from the arbitrary imposition of rules that are then followed uh, with as much uh, capriciousness as possible, with a, with a high degree of rigor, uh, doing your best to exhaust its potential completely. And at the time, uh, the uh, members of that group had experimented with this particular constraint that you've described attempting to write uh, meaningful stories uh, using only one of the five vowels. So as a consequence, if, for example, you limit your vocabulary to the uh, words containing only the letter A, you can only use words like banana, abracadabra, mat, cat, bat, etc., in order to be able to express yourself. And I think these initial experiments uh, were interesting, but uh, they're Practitioners concluded that it was probably impossible to write uh, a lengthy, meaningful text that might have much literary merit. And at the time, I thought that uh, the attempt was relatively uh, superficial, it was merely an experimental attempt to see how you might go about uh, um, finishing such a constraint. And I figured that I would try uh, to do this uh, task out of curiosity, just to see whether it was possible. And I was relatively thoroughgoing about it. I uh, pulled out of my uh, bookshelf uh, my three-volume Third Webster's New International Collegiate Dictionary, uh, which at the time contained uh, most uh, of the words in the English language. It, it, it was bigger than the Oxford Dictionary. 
And I proceeded then to read through it five times, once for each of the vowels, attempting to uh, discern the entire vocabulary available to me by hand, writing down each word, uh, each entry in the dictionary whenever I discovered that it had only one of the five vowels. You know, I'd proceed through the dictionary, all three volumes, looking for all of the words that contained only A, and I very, you know, methodically wrote them all down. It took about a summer to do that of full-time work, uh, four or five months of effort, and I thought that, in fact, that would prove to be the hardest part of the task. I was once asked why I didn't actually automate it, write a piece of software that would permit me to do this, but at the time, in the late 90s, this would have been a relatively difficult challenge for, for me. Uh, I hadn't uh, yet immersed myself in uh, computer programming to the degree that people do now. And I knew that it would probably take me three or four months to learn a sufficient amount of uh, programming to be able to actually produce a credible program capable of doing this. So it's, it's, the, it's the horrible task of most computer programmers. They have to decide whether or not the effort required to write the program is worth it or simply doing it manually is worth it, right? So you come to come some kind of optima about it. I uh, you know, transcribed all of these words into a notebook and then consequently had to organize these words according to their parts of speech nouns and verbs, etc. Uh, and then I organized each of those parts of speech into topical categories, just in an effort to see what uh, kinds of affordances I might derive from each of these vocabularies. Uh, I didn't want to simply try to write something out of my own head and then make it conform uh, to this constraint. I wanted to see what the words themselves could in fact enable. And I wanted, of course, then to be able to figure out if there were uh, stories uh, that were somehow embedded or implicit within the constraint itself. And I discovered that, in fact, uh, uh, you could, you could uh, extract uh, meaningful narratives uh, from these limited vocabularies and that it was possible to almost exhaustively uh, use up the lexicon, mentioning each one of these words uh, at most once or ideally just once. Um, and that was the aspirational uh, task, to see if I could exhaust the available repertoire uh, in as efficiently as possible, saying something beautiful, uh, whimsical, uh, meaningful, uh, without, uh, without forcing it, without it sounding belabored. It had to be musical, it had to conform to all kinds of you know, euphonic constraints and uh, syntactical idiosyncrasies that um, uh, made the work more appealing to a listener. And I really wanted it to sound um, so unlabored that if, if you weren't really attentive, you wouldn't notice that anything was wrong in the course of its enunciation. So I, I felt that I had uh, achieved uh, that uh, result, but uh, it proved to be very, very difficult. It took about seven years to write the book. Uh, and in fact, uh, deriving that vocabulary by reading through a three-volume dictionary five times, that turned out to be the easiest part of the whole process. The rest of it was much, much, much harder. Mm. And favorite letter? Well, the uh, letter I, uh, that I feel proudest of having exhausted is the letter I. I think chapter I is easily, in my mind, the best chapter of them all. Um, it opens with the line, writing is inhibiting, sighing, I sit scribbling in ink, this pigeon script. I sing with nihilistic witticism, etc. It goes on like that. And I'm very proud of the um, uh, elaborateness of that chapter and its coherence. But it is not, in fact, uh, most people's favorite. Most people, uh, I think, hew to the letter U. They, they love the ribald, obscene character of that vowel and enjoy that chapter more than any other. I'm often asked to read uh, from chapter U because, of course, it's 
uh, riven with uh, the most obnoxious uh, uh, vocabulary. And uh, it's a delight to read it. It's much, it's very fun to read it aloud, but it's not my favorite one. Uh, my favorite, I think, is Chapter I for sure. I admire the longevity of a seven-year project. Um, I think you've spent a lot of years on other projects as well. How long did Xenotext take you to, to do? Well, um, my first uh, book of poetry, Crystallography, took me four years to write. Uh, my second book of poetry, Unoya, took me seven years to write. Uh, the current project I'm working on called the Xenotext has so far taken uh, uh, 23 years uh, of work, and it's not yet finished. Uh, I published the first installment of it in 2015, and that would imply that it took me uh, 12 years uh, to write that first installment. But the project is still ongoing, and um, uh, until recently, it was uncertain whether or not I might actually succeed at it. But I think I'm on the verge of uh, announcing, perhaps as early as next year, that I'm I'm ready to say that I succeeded at this project, uh, despite its immense difficulty. Uh, I would suggest to you that you do not want to subscribe to a poetic career in which each book uh, undergoes a kind of logarithmic uh, um, uh, graph of time required to complete it. Uh, you know, I think I've got like four years, seven years, 12 years, possibly 22 years. It's, it's, it's not a great um, way to run a career. Let me, let me suggest to you it's really hard to um, uh, sustain um, uh, a sense, a sense of closure around around the work when it takes a long time to do it. But I promised myself as a young man that I would attempt to do impossible things. I'm probably a poet who has uh, garnered a reputation for doing truly difficult, if not impossible, tasks in language. And uh, I'm proud, I suppose, of, of 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 demonstrating that it is possible for the language to accommodate some of the most uh, uh, Sisyphean, if not Herculean, tasks uh, required of it. It somehow seems to reward our faith in it by offering us solutions eventually to these kinds of impossible problems that we impose upon it. One of the things I've, I've begun to understand about our relationship to language is that it really is capacious enough to accommodate whatever we might dare to do to it. With, let's say, something like extreme sports or super marathon running, um, that, or let's say um, hiking every great mountain like Mount Olympus and so on. There's a community of people that do these Herculean or Sisyphean tasks together. Um, and so even if it's somewhat contrarian, there's a kind of tribe around these uh, people who push their limits. But I don't know too many people who are working on 12-year poet poetry projects that involve, let's say, um, creating uh, protein chains and then encoding poems into <laughs> actual bacteria with the uh, aspirational goal that in the uh, event of a wipeout of all of humanity and perhaps even Earth, that poem could survive. So um, is it lonely or have you found a community of poets who um, who share this aspiration to go to the very edge of language and its um, possible impossibilities? Well, I'll confess so hard that uh, uh, my work tends to polarize people's opinions. Um, uh, there are probably just as many poets who, and, and peers who imagine that I must be a fraud, uh, as there are who imagine that I must be a genius. Now I would prefer to think that those who think I'm a genius are closer to the truth than those who think I'm a fraud. Um, uh, it, it is challenging to work this hard on a project and seek support, perhaps financially from subsidy, a grant, um, uh, a job even, something like that, to, to, to receive affirmation or validation and then not to get it despite uh, what would you know, uh, uh, look like a, a relatively 
impressive career of achievement, of, of extreme achievement. So it's very difficult on those occasions when I get turned down for things. I don't, I, I don't like uh, failing to get the grant or failing to get the job, uh, failing to get uh, some um, uh, note of uh, grace from, from somebody when I need their help. I, like really, a lot of this work does require some uh, vote of support from a community of peers. And on those occasions when it doesn't materialize, it's very, very challenging and difficult to maintain, a, uh, you know, some equanimity about the, the world of poetry, I think. Um, uh, but there are other occasions when, of course, uh, people are very supportive. Uh, you know, sometimes find somebody who uh, has taken immense inspiration from the effort and uh, takes delight, of course, in these whimsical, you know, bursts of, of effort uh, and, and hopes, of course, that you prevail. Um, uh, all of the projects have required some degree of heroism, uh, and uh, they've often been very black projects. I've you know I've passed through you know very dark moments of depression, wondering how I can actually complete something that proves to be perhaps beyond my capacity to do it. Uh, in the case of the Xenotext, uh, I knew I was embarking on something that was going to be very very challenging uh, to encipher a poem into the genome of an unkillable bacterium capable of surviving in almost any environment, including the vacuum of outer space. And given its hardiness and its capacity to resist evolutionary drift, it repairs its own DNA so quickly that it doesn't really need to change or evolve. It doesn't mutate, but it's so adapted to the lethality of the universe that it doesn't have much um, you know, incentive to change. Uh, and as a consequence, it makes a very durable archive uh, for information. Um, and by putting my poem inside such an organism, I could conceivably be writing a book that might outlast uh, terrestrial civilization, and perhaps it might be on the planet Earth when the sun explodes. So I'm very literally attempting to alter the behavior of a living thing so that uh, it, it can make a book that would literally last forever. And uh, while poets, of course, pay lip service to the immortality of art, I think it, you know it's an immense sense of hubris, right? In the idea that you might actually attempt to do that literally, go go ahead and make a, a work of art or a cultural artifact that might endure forever. Um, uh, the organism I've selected as the host is uh, very difficult to engineer. Uh, it's not well understood. And I began this project uh, in the early aughts, around 2002, at a time when uh, our technological affordances uh, were extremely expensive and um, uh, crude, and uh, we were just still trying to figure out how to do much of what um, would need to be done for this. You know, genetic sequencing, uh, protein engineering, predicting folds of uh, peptides—all of these kinds of tasks uh, were, in fact, uh, either very, very expensive or extremely difficult, if not impossible. And it's taken, you know, the course of 20 years to acquire sufficient expertise in genetic engineering and proteomic engineering so that I can uh, know enough to do these designs and construct experiments that can be conducted on my behalf at labs uh, so that I can troubleshoot uh, the outcomes uh, because, of course, the scientists uh, are just as mystified as me about the outcomes. And uh, they're not responsible, of course, for fixing it for me. I have to do all of that myself. So it's uh, been a, a challenge, and I'm not—I wasn't sure my IQ was high enough to be able to deal with each one of these difficulties. Um, and I was beginning to run out of options. You know, I would—I would explore a decision tree. You know, you know, pursuing these various branches and twigs uh, en route to what I hoped would be a solution, only to you know encounter a dead end and have to backtrack, 
or you know inevitably end up at the very tip of the of the tree you know the very very tip of some branch where there are no more decisions left to make right i have now narrowed it down to pretty much the ultimate options that are at last available and there's probably no other options if it doesn't work i'm i'm truly screwed um and of course it, when it doesn't work i'm i'm left in the dark i really don't understand how it couldn't and it takes more, uh, of course, uh, research and effort to uh, entertain hypotheses about what might have gone wrong. Um, and uh, you know, the, the, the sciences are very good uh, guides in this, uh, but they too are also in the dark, right? Uh, genetic engineering and protein engineering still is riven with a lot of magic and voodoo. It's a lot of you know educated guesses and uh, you know uh, support by very complex you know computerized. AI networks and things like that that are fundamentally black boxes. You, 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 I'm using whatever tools I, I can find. And um, thankfully, I think I've managed to um, uh, solve most of the um, problems that have plagued me in the last 10 years that have made it difficult to, to arrive at a solution set. A lot of people who have this sort of analytic uh, capacity and also this obsessiveness, you find that they will be engineers or computer scientists you don't find a lot of people with this level of obsession, I think, um, in poetry. At least, maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, I, I know poets care about words. I, I think there are lots of people with obsessions in poetry, but uh, they, they, they skew to other uh, aptitudes, I think, or, or other interests. You know. Exactly. I think, like, let's say this desire to be beautiful, but then also this desire to be logical. Um, and, and also the scope of the project going well off the page and embracing life. I find that to be pretty rare. Uh, it's certainly, uh, uh, ambition among poets is, um, uh, I think truncated, uh, most of my peers and including some very close friends, uh, up until recently were really encouraging me to quit the project thinking I had failed and, and, uh, I was ruining my life by continuing to, uh, bang my head against this particular door. And um, they thought uh, it would be more interesting if I uh, settled for the failure and wrote about that instead, uh, rather than uh, attempting to uh, extract success uh, from this difficult task. Now, in the history of poetry, uh, my favorite story, probably the most important story uh, that you could tell me would be the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Uh, the story about uh, a poet attempting to uh, resurrect a, a dead lover and save the day, save her, save, save himself uh, from the ravages of hell and its losses and grief. And poetry has this certain kind of role that, you know, almost by magic, you could summon into existence a real thing, you know, like almost, but not quite, right? You know, if I describe an apple, you know, vividly enough in your mind, uh, I could almost make you taste it, right? It's like it would be possible, of course, to evoke something as though it were real. And of course, uh, poets always fail. But um, in this case, I don't want to be, you know, the poet who has spent, you know, 22 years in hell and then uh, walks across the threshold into the light without, you know, bringing the bride with me. And I, I think the story would be better in my case if I were the, the one Orpheus, the one poet who actually does manage to escape hell without looking back and uh, manages to, in fact, pull, um, you know, the, the, the lost lover into the light. Um, I think that uh, I'm on the verge of, make, of making that happen. And uh, it's um, uh, more satisfying to be able to say to my, my friends that I didn't have to relent. 
and um, admit to a failure in response to this effort, uh, that the labor may have paid off and that it was worth it to demonstrate that language could in fact accommodate this amazing dialogue between the structure of the English language and the structure of the genetic code that underpins all living things, right? That there's some intimacy that can be called upon between these two uh, ways of harboring information, that, that there's a, a possibility of transmission between the two of them. The two poems uh, that uh, I, I've created for this project um, uh, seem to me heartbreaking. They're, the, the, the first poem I've written is a short little sonnet um, and it, uh, I've nicknamed it Orpheus, and it alludes to a kind of masculine assertion about uh, the creative potential of poetry. And the organism, when uh, it finds this poem implanted into it as a gene sequence, actually interprets it as a set of instructions and in response builds a protein, one whose sequence of amino acids itself enciphers yet another text, another poem uh, nicknamed Eurydice, which speaks back to my poem and constitutes a kind of feminine refutation of, of the creative potential of poetry. And these two poems are written according to a very Herculean constraint, very, very difficult uh, set of rules that underpins the, their relationship to each other. Uh, and as it turns out, uh, there's about eight trillion uh, kinds of rules I could, have, I could have explored in order to be able to generate these poems, but none of them actually work. None of those eight trillion uh, alternatives uh, actually generate anything meaningful, uh, except this one. And for me, there's a certain fragility in this, uh, that out of all of the, say, eight trillion worlds that might in, you know, orbit stars in our own galaxy, so far as we can tell, um, you know, there's only one that harbors life. There's only one of them that harbors poetry, in effect. Uh, all the rest appear to be barren deserts. And so far as the eye can see, you know, looking out into the cosmos, we see very little evidence, if, if at all, that there's any intelligence, sentience, you know, uh, making its way across the galaxy, right? You know, you know colonizing stars and, and building a civilization that, that transcends um, its home world. We see no evidence of that. And for me, these poems testify to that kind of uniqueness of living things, that this is the only poem that can be written uh, according to this uh, bizarre constraint that would make it possible for the organism to read it and respond to it. Um, and the bizarre coincidence is that these two poems function uh, in dialogue like pastoral poetry from uh, medieval traditions of love poetry in which a herd boy addresses an emphat, in which you have a character who plays the role of Orpheus, perhaps addressing an emphat like Eurydice, and uh, the dialogue constitutes a kind of um, witty argument between them. And for me, the fact that, that out of all of the possibilities available, uh, the coincidence uh, that arises here is that you, you find the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. And given the almost infernal character of the host organism, it's a bit hellish in its um, surreality. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's kind of amazing that uh, it, it's, these two poems are going to be the ones that are housed in, in this unkillable bacterium, right? This organism that can survive quite literally in the most hellish environments you can imagine. And it will keep on, you know, ticking no matter what, um, that it will carry within it this important myth in the history of poetry, a story that, you know, has, uh, probably the most essential one for poets, certainly for a poet like me, I regard that story as, as absolutely quintessential, but part of the DNA of my own being.
So Eurydice and Orpheus are iconic uh, pagan uh, mythical characters, and your name is Christian Buck. Um, Christianity takes the the pagan myths but elevates them into perhaps, again, I guess it depends on your strain of Christian theology, a more comedic, um, saved ending. If you think of um, tragedy constituting the sort of ancient pre-Christian world, the story of Jesus and the resurrection takes an apparent death and then actually says, no, it's not a real death. Um, Whereas in the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, Orpheus is just left holding the bag. Um, well, yeah, Orpheus suffers suffers her death twice, right? You know, and it was all the, all the worse because of it, right? You know, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the grief of of losing losing the lover because of, she's murdered, and then uh, losing her again because he can't, uh, you know, cr- create a poem uh, powerful enough to overcome the spell of of the underworld. Many have gone to hell. Uh, many poets have gone to hell. But, but they always um, come back alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that was my well, question. Well, if they do come uh, back, I don't know. They, they, there's, the, the story of Orpheus, though, is that he does come back and he's, he's haunted. So the, you know, he, he ends up bringing back some sort of demon with him, right? You know, you know, and that demon might be true love itself, right? It, 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 it's been contaminated. You know, and blackened, blighted by its its experience in hell. That the true love can't really survive the, the you know the the dark fires of hell. And uh, when he returns, of course, is incapable of experiencing um, anything other than uh, sorrow. And of course, his uh, plight of sorrow is so off putting, right, to everyone around him that uh, when the um, Ismar and witches show up, right, in their bacchanals, they murder him. Right? They, they destroy him because he's resistant to their overtures of, uh, you know, libido. And, and you know, they, they, they hate Eurydice for having distracted him. And they have consequently destroy him, rip him apart and hurl his, uh, his um, skull into the, into the Urus River. And, uh, you know, for all eternity, he just mutters the name of his lover. That, that, that story, of course, it seems to me to be, uh, you know, a, has, has its echoes in lots of other traditions, right? The myth of Osiris, for example. And I mean, there's lot, lots of, as you noted, um, you know, pre-Christian stories. And it, I, I think it's observant to note that in Christianity, that resurrection uh, becomes truthful and it's possible to imagine uh, transcending death and coming out unscathed. Um, uh, I mean, it's a, a redemptive story, of course. And, and I, I suppose that's why it's considered the, the greatest story ever told. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking about Dante right. as somebody who went to hell um, guided by Virgil, but then has to leave Virgil, you know, in purgatory in order to go ascend and claim his Beatrice. And so do you feel more drawn to the Orpheus and Eurydice framework or do you feel like um, you have a Dante? Yeah, you know, I, I suspect that there's a bit of uh, mournfulness and melancholy, you know, that, that you know, has its pleasure in the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. I, I mean, I really do regard that story as talismanic for some, for me. Um, and uh, the, you know, I've written other poetry that's informed by its um, motifs. And um, I certainly, I certainly, you know, regarded, regarded as part of the background radiation of my life as a poet, probably, probably much more than, uh, I don't know, my upbringing, you know, in a kind of part-time, you know, Christian household, right. You know, uh, I was raised in a, in a rural community as a Presbyterian, which is hardly, 
you know, a, a, a form of devotion in Christianity. And of course, I'm a skeptic. I'm an atheist now. The story of Christ doesn't doesn't um, factor, I think, so prominently in my imagination, as does this Orphic myth. You've used the word affordances a bunch, um, which is a word that I love as well. Um, it's one that I came to from my study of phenomenology. Um, and I'll just, for the listeners, give a couple examples of what I think an affordance is. So if you're in a park and you see a bench, the bench um, affords you the opportunity to sit down and to experience uh, reading or people watching or listening to the birds or whatever it is. Um, if that bench weren't there, right, that affordance that opportunity wouldn't be there. And whether or not you sit down, you see the bench and you experience that potential to sit, that potential to interact with the bench. And so that the affordance points to possibility rather than actuality, because you don't have to accept the gambit of the bench. And of course, a more mundane example would be a doorknob. Um, a doorknob affords you the opportunity to open the door to transition to another room. I think the way you used affordance was referring to language, which is very powerful because we are normally so unaware of the words that come out of our mouth or that we use. And yet there's all these affordances that happen as we're speaking. Um, I'd love to hear just more from you about how you think about affordances and affordances within language. I might suggest to you that uh, for most of us, we understand that language constitutes part of a social contract of communication and that at its best, for our interpersonal interactions, uh, we're supposed to actually uh, transmit meaningful statements, right? We're supposed to actually communicate our intentions to each other. Uh, usually they take the form of commands, perhaps, or requests, right? Or the expressions of desires. You know, they have a kind of teleology attached to them, right? They're purposeful statements, um, you know, that, that are intended to elicit responses from our, our listeners, right? We want you to, um, you know, uh, you know, bring us the menu, right? <laughs> right. We, we, we would like to, you know, confirm that the food is good, right? Like what, whatever the whatever the purpose of of speech is, it, it it seems to us that it has a kind of functional and utilitarian purpose. All and um, uh, it's very different from uh, other kinds of art forms, poetry, because um, we don't use um, uh, clay to sculpt conversations with each other really in real time. Like I'm not expecting to build a little sculpture and then show it to you and you in response, build a sculpture and show it to me. And in response, I build a sculpture again and show it to you. We don't have conversations like that, you know, at the dining room table, right? That is not how we communicate. I don't, you know, do so by, you know, composing concertos, you know, and giving it to you and you in response, you know, give me a concerto and we have a conversation. It's not chit chat, right? We don't use other media uh, for that particular purpose of, uh, intersocial communication. It's not part of the social contract of uh, profitable uh, exchanges of meaning. Whereas uh, poetry uh, actually intrudes upon that contract and suspends for a little while uh, the usefulness of language and uh, uh, exploits it for different purposes, does other things with it. Uh, it's one of the reasons I think, um, you know, people uh, who are not immersed in poetry very, very deeply often say that they don't understand it or don't like it. Um, it would seem to me mysterious to say that uh, if, because it's kind of like saying you don't like music because, because you don't understand it. And I would say, no, no, it just means that you haven't found the music you like. Everybody likes music. How, you know, nobody, nobody dislikes music, you know, totally, right? Like everybody's got something that they regard as a favorite. 
I feel like rules are somewhat unfashionable amongst, uh, let's say, millennials and maybe even boomers. Um, like I, uh, this is just my anecdotal sort of drive-by sense, but I feel like people tend to perceive rules as overly constraining and sort of anti-liberal in some way. Like I have the right to self-express and implicit in that is the assumption that if you were to self-express a la Rousseau's model of the self, um, you would sort of buck all, you know, you all, all social constraints um, and see them as oppressive. And of course, there's a kind of conclusion to this, uh, almost a climax in our present moment, which is the, the idea that um, if you feel something, um, then you are right. And if society tells you otherwise, you know, they are phobic in some way. Um, and, and it's, the, it's tie always go, or not even tie, but um, the presumption of favors the individual as opposed to, let's say, the rule. Um, the rule always needs to change to accommodate the individual. So I'm curious, um, what draws you to rules? <laughs> I would like to say that my response to rules here is that um, all poets, no matter who they are, I think uh, probably start uh, on the square of romanticism, that every poet comes to poetry probably a romantic at heart, right? With a little star hovering above their head, a little halo of light, you know, floating above their head. I don't know, some some lightning bolt on their forehead, whatever. They, they show up, you know, with a kind of Blakeian blessing, you know, a calling to the uh, form. Uh, they, uh, you know, have this kind of romantic uh, attitude about uh, poetry, but they choose their weapons. And in the history of romanticism, there's probably two understandings of the self uh, that are uh, in contradiction to each other. Um, the first, I would suggest, uh, hovers around Wordsworth, uh, who coined the phrase the egotistical sublime to describe uh, the role of poetry as a form of self-expression. Now, he offers two models of self-expression that are contradictory uh, in the lyrical ballads. Uh, the first of which is that a poem is emotion recollected in tranquility. And that would be the relatively cognizant uh, kind of meditation in which the person has an intention and knows that they have something meaningful to say and are conscious of their expression in the moment of its enunciation. Um, that's a relatively cognitive understanding of uh, poetic expression. But he also notes that he also redefines poetry as uh, a spontaneous outburst of feeling which of course is less rational. It too is self-expressive, but it's now unconscious rather than conscious. And um, in this respect, it's much more akin to a kind of delirious or vertiginous form of uh, writing, a rhapsodic understanding of poetry. Both of those forms of understanding though are uh, self-expressive. Either I intended to express myself or you know, I didn't intend to, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm meant to say something. I, I, have, I, have some, I say something meaningful, but I either did it uh, intentionally or uh, unintentionally. Now, in contrast to these models of the egotistical sublime in which the value of the poet is based primarily upon the quality of that expression, right? It's either its degree of sincerity or authenticity versus its uh, degree of delirium and raps, raps, rhapsody. Um, in contrast to that, we have, of course, the alternative, which is uh, pro probably Keats, who coined the phrase negative capability to describe the suppression of the self and self-expression of the poet so that the poet um, might get away from their own cognitive uh, experience in order to place themselves at the disposal of forces outside themselves or larger than themselves. And that's a, a radically different understanding of poetic expression. 
because it does mean either you subordinate yourself perhaps to some rules, right? Uh, and, and you can't say whatever you want. You now have to conform to a preconception that is given to you in advance, you know, a prescription uh, that is obdurate. And uh, you demonstrate your talent by transcending it, by, by overcoming this you know, agonistic relationship to a, to a constraint. Or alternatively, you delegate the task of writing to some force larger than yourself that uh, returns it to you almost uh, in an aleatoric way, like a, a random way, right? You know, and you 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 delegate the you know form of expression to a machine or, or an agency that's not you. Something else gets to express itself through you on its own behalf. And the the way of the egotistical sublime, you know, leads through the history of literature, through confessional forms of writing, you know, probably ending somewhat um, churlishly in the Hallmark greeting card. But um, you know the 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 tradition of negative capability um, uh, develops uh, its its models of of empathic engagement with other identities not your own right you you be, you can become another person right in that milieu you could conceivably be like Shakespeare and just seem to be anybody right the in the, or you become an actor you suppress yourself so that you can somehow channel the personality of somebody else and give vent to that. Uh, set of motivations, you know, suspend your own self on behalf of something else. And that, those uh, tricks, those uh, procedures, you know, they result in the history of the avant-garde and most forms of experimental literary practice, uh, in which I might suggest they, they result in most of the good ideas in the 20th century about, uh, the, you know, that we borrow and, and exploit for um, other purposes. However, the, in the history of literature, and even now, and certainly now, uh, there's always been a great suspicion between those people who subscribe to the egotistical sublime and those who subscribe to negative capability. The, the people who subscribe to the egotistical sublime regard the extinction of the self as the worst possible crime. And they don't look favorably upon the people who aspire to right, to eliminate their themselves on, on behalf of some other empathic force larger than themselves. They regard that as especially threatening and uh, do a lot to to impugn it, right? To ridicule it, uh, to prevent its capacity to to occupy much space culturally, um, and uh, you know it's a sad thing, as we would say. Look, the, you know, the, most of what we constitutes art actually originates in this principle of artifice. You know that it's possible to be empathic enough not to be yourself, to tell a story that's not your own. Uh, to uh, put yourself at the display of forces, not yourself, so that you can surprise yourself in the course of self-expression. You find out something you didn't know, right? In the act of, of trying to conform to a procedural constraint or trying to, I don't know, just see what happens. Like the, 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 the model of experimentation that characterizes negative capability, I think is, uh, from my perspective, and I mean, it's not to dismiss the merits of, of lyric forms of self-expression. It's just, for me, it's much more um, uh, exciting to, uh, to explore that with you. Um, I'm not a very interesting person. I think, you know, like, I don't think I have much to say about myself that would interest others. Um, you know, I'm, uh, but I am very interested in, you know, the material character of language and what it could do if it was pressed to, you know, these extreme limit cases. And I, I think that's what I'm interested in, you know, primarily as a poet, interested in the limit cases of writing, you know, those, those moments when people say that's not a poem, I probably perk up and start looking more with, with greater engagement at it, because I, I have to imagine that it's a prejudice, right? Uh, an orthodoxy that prevents people from recognizing that probably everything is poetic. If you give it the right attention, you know, almost anything could be considered poetic with sufficient yeah, engagement, with sufficient 
uh, charity, right? Do you find examples that are hybrids of the two models, the Wordsworth and the Keats, that are compelling to you, or one one where either the subject? I, I think it's hard to play uh, two games simultaneously. Like, look, this was way. <laughs> uh, like uh, it, it, I think it's, I think these are all games, uh, the, and that you know, the, there's probably four ways to be a poet. You can uh, be self-conscious and self-expressive, and that means you're a cognitive lyric poet. Or you can be unselfconscious but self-expressive, and that means you're kind of a rhapsodic poet. Or you can be, you know, unselfconscious but what's or you can be self-conscious but uh, unexpressive, and that's the kind of poet who's probably following a constraint, you know, some some sort of uh, rules. Or you can be unselfconscious and unexpressive, and that's the aleatoric result, right? Where you're not nobody's at home, right? The the poem writes itself, almost so to speak. Like it's you know it's written by a machine, it's written by, I don't know, a roll of the dice or something. Um, and each one of these uh, uh, traditions, each one of these styles, constitutes a game that you could play. You know, uh, if you if you're a cognitive poet, you're occupying a persona. You take on a kind of persona whose whose success is is valued based upon qualities like sincerity or authenticity. But, you know, in, if, if you're, uh, you know, in the milieu of the spontaneous outburst of feeling, then we're going to be evaluating you according to games of vertigo, like in which the point of the, of the experience is actually to induce in you a vertiginous sense of, of escape from yourself, uh, a kind of rhapsodic, you know, uh, delirious outburst. So we judge you based on the quality of the delirium that it induces. Uh, you know, or, or you have these kind of agonistic games with rules, you know, and there we, we judge you based on your virtuosity, right? Your technical aptitudes in the face of, uh, of um, restrictions. Or alternatively, we evaluate you uh, based on the uncanniness or spookiness of the outcome of your random poem, right? Like that indemnifies your genius without you making any effort. Um, and that's, a, that's gambling, right? That's just, that's just games of chance. You know, so there's games of chance and there's games of combat and, there's, you know, games of mimicry and games of uh, vertigo. Uh, all of these are just, you know, anthropological games. There's only four ways to play. And it could be that there's only four ways to be a poet. Most poets, I think, you know, prefer to play a, a kind of game of pageantry and mimicry where they occupy a persona that becomes the means by which they express themselves. And they generally do so with some self-consciousness and, and self-expressiveness. You mentioned before that sort of the technology wasn't wasn't as good when you were starting out as it now is. How how do you think technological change more broadly, forget AI specifically, um, has helped, hurt, or just been neutral for the cause of poetry? Oh, I think I think technology has always uh, transmuted poetry. Um, I would say for the better, uh, at least in so far as it's offered more uh, options. Um, you know the the all of these new technologies uh, offer us more ways to be a poet. And uh, that to me is always very exciting. Uh, If it grants us more pathways, I don't think there's only one pathway to the future. I don't think there's just one way to be a poet. Um, And I'm not dismissing, uh, you know, even those, those, you know, modes of poetry that are uh, perhaps now parochial or even philistinic in their attitudes. They have their they have their roles to play in the history and development of poetry. Still, there's no obsolete you know varieties of poetry in my opinion. It's just simply um, lots of different ways of trying to figure out how to do what you do best and exploiting you know your relationship to language uh, in a manner which uh, you know tells the truth. I suppose right that gives you some 
some insight into the language itself. Uh, so so all, all of the all of the current uh, you know technological advancements with the, you know with the internet and um, artificial intelligence, gen generative algorithms, all of these all of these tools um, just just enhance, I suppose, the smorgasbord of options that poets can exploit. But despite the fact that I have always imagined that poets should be among the most imaginative people in the room, uh, it's, it's not really uh, demonstrated by the, the sociology of poetry, right? You know, people are, you know, hidebound and prejudicial and, and confined to their corners and, and often very skeptical um, of change or newness within uh, the discipline. Is that sociological fact sort of suggestive of something of our moment or of American culture, or is it just a pure psychological phenomenon, or do you think there's something deeper there? No, there's, there's, something, there's something awry with poetry right now, for sure. Um, I, I'm not going to be able to really uh, you know, put my finger on any specific um, failure of it, but I, but I, I would note that um, at, the, at the dawn of the 20th century, say by uh, 1923, there were at least half a dozen uh, experimental, globally renowned uh, movements in poetry uh, that were all of them competing for attention on the world stage, that there was a, a lot of really good ideas at the time, a lot of uh, ferment that people you know, were thinking um, uh, very optimistically about the future and that there was a kind of utopian dimension to poetic innovation. So there was at least six or seven really globally renowned uh, aesthetic movements, all of them uh, inspirational, really interesting. Now, if I were to say now, point point to the moment now, and I were to ask you, you know, how many you know avant-garde literary movements are in the world, right? How many different poetry movements are at play uh, on the global stage? Uh, it is still one, maybe two. It's two, let's say. Uh, it's not half a dozen. It's not six or seven. Uh, it's it's one, maybe two. And that's it. And yet uh, we are at a moment in uh, human history when the future, despite uh, all our pessimism about it, could be, you know, brighter. Like we have an immense amount of potential to exploit here, right? There's an enormous, uh, you know, future ahead of us of, of greatness and prosperity and, and wonderment, right, that awaits us. Uh, none of which seems to be seen yet by the poets, right? Um, uh, if, if I were to remark upon a particular failure of poetry that really appalls me, it's this. Um, uh, in, you know, 1969, you know, humanity stepped foot uh, on the moon from, you know, a ghost stepped off a ladder onto the surface of the moon. And uh, despite the fact that for me, that's my very first memory. Uh, I, it's the first memory that I can actually date. I was just a, a few weeks shy of three years old. And uh, my first memory is of Neil Armstrong, a little ghost stepping off a ladder onto the surface of uh, a gray desert. And uh, uh, that moment constitutes probably the greatest achievement of all living things on the planet since the earth began. The willful um, um, achievement of escaping the gravity well for the first time and actually stepping foot on a new world. It, for me, my first memory is akin to saying my first memory is watching a lungfish, you know, flop out of the ocean onto the land, right? Watching the first theropod, you know, step foot on a beach. 
And that's my first memory. That's a Darwinian moment, right? You know, the theropods are the first astronauts in a sense when they, you know, you know, crawled out of the ocean onto the land. That's a big deal. Uh, it's the first step to the stars, really, right? And yet, um, despite this epic achievement, you know, that in the 20th century we have uh, experiences that are equivalent to, I don't know, intercontinental battles and extraterrestrial voyages described in the epic poetry of our pagan cultures, right? You know, the if the ancient Greeks had grown a trireme to the moon, right, there would be, you know, a 12-volume epic poem about that experience, right? But as it stands, right, the, you know, among the earliest works of literature in Western world is a bunch of pirates going to rescue a fishwife, right, from a little fort in the Middle East, right? And uh, the, that story, you know, uh, resonates, you know, through the centuries and uh, millennia. Um, and yet here we've actually done that. We've done something that's divine. Uh, you know, it's a, it's an intercontinental voyage in the wake of, inter, uh, it's an extraterrestrial voyage in the wake of intercontinental battles that rival epic poems. And there's no epic poem about the moon landing. There's no canonically important poem about the moon landing that testifies to that great achievement probably the most important thing that's ever happened to life on earth. And uh, my, you know, I, I feel a, a, a lack of gratitude to poetry for this oversight, right? That it's, it, that it's somehow impossible to write an epic poem, to write a long 12 volume epic that would, you know, encompass the entirety of our culture, that would become something you would have to memorize, right? In its entirety, you know, to communicate, you know, around our various campfires to each other in order to preserve our cultural heritage. There's no story like that. And it could be that poetry can't compete with, the, with those beautiful Hasselblad images, right? You know, with the, you know, the grandeur and sublimity of the rocket launches and the, and the sheer, uh, you know, nightmarishness of that underworld that, uh, you know, is, is just, just a, a 200 mile drive straight up, right? You know? <laughs> I wonder if the would-be poets um, who could compose such an epic poem have just been brain drained, so to say, because of banal incentives. So there's no money or status in poetry, relatively speaking, as, as there used to be. Well, it's true. I mean, you know, poetry used to be able to found civilizations. You know, it's founded the greatest works of uh, religious tradition. You know, you know, this, the Bible, the Quran, the Torah, these are, these are the works of, of you know, poets at heart. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've, they've provided the foundational texts for you know, management of civilizations. Um, in addition to which we have, you know, the, the oral traditions of everything from Beowulf to the Iliad to the Epic of Gilgamesh. And, and those are really important texts, you know, in the, in the history of humanity. They constitute, uh, you know, great nightmares that get to be retold over and over again. Uh, I don't think, I really don't think that, you know, maybe since Milton, there has been a, a poem that warrants the attention, you know, of, 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 Contemporary poets, at least in English. I mean, it just it just seems to me that you know we can, we have to go back and look at older epic forms across many cultures. I mean, there's lots of epic forms across most cultures that are quite good, but for some reason, the epic now seems um, impossible. It seems like a uh, an unavailable tool in the toolbox. Um, and you know, I mean, we have robots that have taken you know pictures of orange ethane lakes on Titan. I mean, really, truly surreal worlds. And yet there's no poetry about that, right? Poets continue to write about their divorces. And it's not to suggest that a divorce is not as important, perhaps, as an orangey thing like on Titan. That's <laughs> what I'm immediately suggesting here. It's just that 
we've had a lot of poems about divorces and not a lot of poems about that wonderment, right, of, of actually visiting so strange a world, right, that's real. Like, it's just not in the imagination. It's something quite extraordinary. And yet we don't, we don't address it very directly. Um, you know, if I were to ask you what's your favorite poem about atomic weapons or genetic engineering, you're probably not going to come up with a name of a poem, right? And yet those are, those are affordances. Those are big news, right, in our future, right? They probably will have an immense impact upon our capacity to survive uh, what awaits us. And yet there's nothing, you know, really about them at all. There's not, there's not a lot of great canonical work about it yet, at least not yet. And I surpri- I'm surprised by that. I'm just surprised by that. It would just seem to me that, that perhaps there would be, you know, certainly something. I wonder how much that has to do with specialization as well. And the fact that to really know a discipline, you you have to be super embedded in it. But then if you're embedded in it, your chances of being interdisciplinary and broad um, go down. So the people who are most equipped to write about genetic engineering, for example, um, are not necessarily people who have cultivated a love of poetry or an appreciation of poetic history. And then those who, let's say, read the history of poetry are simply ill-adept to understand the frontiers of science. Maybe so. Um, and here's the thing. I, would, I wouldn't suggest that being immersed in the frontiers of science is uh, crucial for you to become a poet who has something important to say, like, like make, a, make a contribution. It's just that I, I noticed that this would be unskied snow in the 21st century, right? Like it's, it's, it's terrain open to, you know, exploitation by some poet who, who might come along and discover they have no competition. They could write a poem about the moon landing and make a pretty good go of trying to write the epic poem because there's nobody else, right? Uh, attempting to do so. And you might want to try because it's, it's, uh, open, you know, open season on that, on that topic. I think the, the reward is great, right? But then the risk is high of failure. Um, and so not, not too many people have the patience, let's say, to do a 10-year project, <laughs> whether in poetry. Well, it, it, it maybe so. I mean, it, you know, the, the, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've kidded people that, uh, you know, poets are the stupidest people I know, right? And I, because I'm numbered among them. <laughs> I know how stupid I am, too. Uh, but they're, they're still the stupidest people I know. Um, the, uh, perhaps even the laziest people I know. But the, 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 challenge, the challenge, of course, is that actually, you know, I know lots of people who are very, very smart in that movie. Who are who are quite amazing and are always uh you know attempting to do things that are different uh it's true that there's not many incentives and the competition against other cultural artifacts is is pretty big so the question i, I think is that you know the the role that poetry serves in our in our current climate is is harder to uh, pin down and on those occasions when people are great at it and make money at it they're usually not in the purview of poetry they are they're outside that arena they're in the world of hip hop or rap music. Um, uh, maybe they're on Instagram as glamour uh, uh, pundits, right? I mean, like you, you, you don't see it, I think, in the uh, commonplace world of literature these days. The poetry is probably elsewhere right now. You have a combination that I'm impressed by, which is this sort of rigor and um, commitment to something very pure and very contrarian. Um, but also an openness, I think, um, to like a pluralism to other forms of the art. And I would, you know, you said that everybody has a poem that they could love. They just haven't found it yet. And, and sort of that there's different games one could play. So maybe, um, 
this is not a tension for you. Maybe there's a harmony between that, but I'd love to hear more about that sort of well, it, democratic it, it, spirit. It, and then the when a when a when a person who's a lyric poet, uh, you know, who's writing, you know, it's an expression of their feelings, and they look at somebody over here who's rolling dice, you know, and and really, you know, placing words at random, right? I don't know, calling on a chat GPT to write the poem for them. They, they dismiss that person and say, that's not poetry. And I say, no, 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 it's poetry, but it, 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 it's playing by different rules. And the rules uh, by which they play have different outcomes by which you would judge their success. Like, you know, you're playing a game with a different means of winning. So it, it's the it's the chauvinism, perhaps, of somebody who, you know, plays chess and, and sneers at the football player, right? Uh, now, fundamentally, those two games are both versions of Agon, right? They're both combat, but they're, you know, the, the rules by which you play them and the, you know, the outcomes, you know, have different, um, you know, standards of value. Um, yeah, but you still believe in standards of value. You just believe that they, that one standard for one game doesn't transfer to a different game. So, yeah, like, I mean, like what make what makes a klezmer song beautiful, right? To the person who's an aficionado of klezmer music is going to be different from what you know somebody thinks is great in a work of eighteenth uh, century baroque classical music, right? They're going to be different standards of value by which we judge the merits of those. How things. do you maintain this sort of love of all people's poetic journeys with a sense of rigor? that there is such a thing as excellence. Maybe there's varieties of excellence, but like you don't get to show up and just be a poet. Well, I, I do think that there's objective varieties of excellence. Yeah, I do think there's objective varieties of excellence. But uh, I also understand that that um, every game has an objective winner. Like, like it's possible to, to, to point to a game and say that there's an objective winner, like in a game of chess or in, right, in, um, you know, in a... I, I don't know, in, in, a, in a drinking game, <laughs> whatever the game is, right? There's objectively a winner eventually, right? So the, the, we have rules by which we recognize who the winner is, right? And uh, those rules prevail even in poetry. Um, uh, but it, it, they vary depending upon the kind of game that you're playing. Um, now, it's not, not necessary to like every game. I certainly don't like every game. I'm, uh, I'm not as interested, right, in, in everything. But I, I'm not ready to dismiss um, you know, people's efforts out of hand. Like I'm, uh, to, to me, disliking, disliking a work of art is perfectly fine. You can dislike it. That's great. Um, it, it might mean you have taste, you have discernment. Um, you, you know what you like, right? I mean, you're not expected to like everything, right? In the same way that you're not expected, I think, to, to date everybody, right? Like <laughs> you have your, you have your finickiness right here, right? I mean, like you might, you might be selective and discerning. So I don't, I don't, fault people for for having discernment but i might fault them for having the idea that because of what they prefer or because of what they dislike it makes them a better person that somehow they they uh can then um, uh, lavish upon themselves some cloak of superiority uh, usually an ethical or moral conviction right that that accompanies their aesthetic uh prejudices and say so it's all right to have your aesthetic prejudices, but it doesn't make you a better person or even a worse person for having them, right? It's like it—it it, it seems to me that you have to be accommodating enough to to recognize that there are certain kinds of uh, art that you're not going to easily appreciate, but it's okay if somebody else does, right? That it's not necessary that that there only be one kind or only the only the kind of work that you approve of, right? Should exist.
Did you start out loving the sort of um, negative capability approach or was that a transition for you? Like how, how did you become the poet that you now are? Uh, I, I, I struggled to, to write uh, self-expressive poetry uh, in my undergraduate years and uh, was competent, had it well enough to get it published, but I wasn't satisfied by the experience. Uh, I realized that I was going to be mediocre uh, if I continued to pursue that uh, avenue of training I wasn't going to excel and I was disheartened by this. I was, it was a certain recognition that I was going to be a mediocre poet and I didn't want to be a mediocre poet. I wanted to be a grandiose poet. I wanted to have bravura and sprezzatura in my, in my life. And when I was a graduate student, uh, I was then introduced to work that I had not yet seen by a colleague in the community who showed me something that uh, was mystifying to me. It was poetry that was deliberately designed to be unreadable. Uh, it was my first introduction to uh, the language movement uh, from the 1980s. And uh, the person who showed me this work uh, was a fan and thought I might benefit from seeing it. And I was so um, uh, appalled by the fact that I didn't understand it and also wasn't prepared to be able to appreciate it, given my own training as an undergraduate in English literature. I thought I should be able to understand everything now. And in the course of my research, discovered that, in fact, there was this immense tradition of literature that had gone untaught to me. I was appalled by that. I was really outraged about that, that, that there was an entire secret history of literature that went unaddressed in the course of my education. And that made me mad. I was really unhappy about that. And I discovered in the midst of all of that work uh, that uh, I was trying to become the poet I should be rather than the kind of poet I could be. I realized that, you know, I'm, uh, the reason I like poetry or want to become a poet is nothing to do necessarily with, you know, a willingness to express my innermost existential concerns. It has more to do with my infatuation with the material um, beauty of language and its uh, textures and granularity, all of, all of its material features that are surprising to me. And, and the um, um, lessons I learned from ignoring the meaningfulness of language, you know, so that I can explore other features of it. Those kinds of uh, tricks seem more satisfying to me. And I discovered that while doing them, I was actually capable of making a contribution that might matter. I realized it could do something good here, right? It could do, do something that was actually uh, magnificent or impressive or, um, you know, satisfying. Like it was, I was going to be satisfied by it. So I, I too, am a huge fan of language poetry and I too kind of had an aha moment when I first discovered it um, in graduate school and wondered, you know, how could I have gone so many years without knowing that this was also a way of doing poetry? Um, I found Pen Sound uh, online, just Googling around and uh, it was an archive of tremendous material. I'm curious, um, but beyond the pleasure of it and beyond the sort of personal sense of just maybe recognition of what it's trying to do, how the experience of reading in this tradition or writing in this tradition has changed you as a person or what you think that good is that you were sort of alluding to, like what is the, the, the true, the good and the beautiful that this way of doing art unlocks that maybe doesn't come from the egotistical sublime? I'm probably a scientist at heart. There's an exploratory dimension to my work, an experimental, really literal experimental dimension to it, uh, a speculative dimension to it. I'm trying to learn something. I'm trying to make a discovery. I'm trying to surprise myself. Um, um, I think uh, 
I feel a different attitude in relationship to my peers. When I was a young man, I you know felt I was in very contrarian and was, in, of course, in a agonistic uh, relationship to many of my peers who found uh, my interests dismissible, you know, uh, kind of untenable. But now I would say that um, uh, the, there's no competition uh, for me except capital H history. That's the opponent. Right, the the big you know capital H history. It's the it's a, a relationship to posterity uh, that you know you're trying to make the big moves, not in res, in relationship to your peer group, um, but with relationship to yourself. Uh, you're trying to you know be a better poet than you were yesterday. Right? You're trying to learn something new that you didn't otherwise know before. Um, uh, I, th I think that uh, as, as you age as a poet, you end up finding that you're in competition now, not just perhaps with the best work by other people, but with your own best work that you've already written. And that somehow, you know, you have to continue to hit that benchmark as well, you know, and exceed it. Right. And, you know, uh, it sometimes it's actually hard now. It's like, it would be difficult. Right. I, I'm, I sure hope I don't have to ever, you know, spend 20 years writing a book of poetry. <laughs> like, I mean, like if I'm going to be in a constant state of, you know, ag on with myself, I get the, what, how long will it take to do the next one to beat out, you know, the Xenotext, like it's going to take forever. It, it, it's, it's not a great position to be in, but I do want to be able to learn, you know, uh, over and over again. I don't, uh, I, I made a blood pact with myself and my peers when I was a young man that I would have to start from scratch every time that if I wrote a poem, I would be starting as though I didn't know anything. And I'd have to teach myself a new skill or try out something different each time. I'd have to do something radically different. So the, the, so there was no habit in the work, right? That there was nothing, you know, that um, was perfectly reconcilable with a style. Now, uh, you know, I think it's probably impossible to defeat style perfectly. Like, you know, it's, you know, every attempt to do so, of course, now becomes yet another, you know, identifying feature of the work, right? But I guess I guess I didn't want to be like a Roy Lichtenstein, you know, like a you know, of course, it, who's a great artist and I admire him immensely. I love all of those uh, comic book paintings, and you know, but but part of me did wonder, like, how many Ben Day dots is enough? Like, when do you get bored of painting Ben Day dots? I mean, it's an especially compulsive behavior to do it over and over again for the course of a career, and a, and there's an immense incentive to do so, right? I mean, if you keep doing it, you make a million dollars every time. So, I mean, like, like I mean, obviously, there's 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 an immense, you know. Uh, incentive to do that. Uh, but uh, it's evident that, you know, th there's only a very limited, you know, palette of, of uh, lessons that can be learned from it. I mean, in the latter half of his career, when he's beginning to paint abstractions using Ben Day dots, uh, when he's painting landscapes and interiors that have no people and they're no longer comic book panels, really, um, they get a little more interesting to me. But I can see, I can see he's still very constrained by that, by that principle that he's given himself right at the start. Um, uh, it's productive. Like, you know, it's, I'm not going to dismiss, dismiss Roy Lichtenstein, but I, I, I didn't want to, I wanted to be sure that it, that it was going to be harder to pin me down. If, you know, like, like I, I would prefer to be able to have done things that are, you know, different from one book to the next. When you're doing something so um, ambitious as sort of competing to make it into capital H history or to leave a legacy or something like that, how do you get, mentorship or feedback for that or like is there another great person that one can call up and say you know help me figure out how to achieve this <laughs> or are you on your own no i can often get asked who's my favorite poets and i say it's an unfair question because i'm just going to point to my own peer group 
right? And it'll be like Picasso saying, I admire the work of George Brock, right? I mean, like his best friend or something. Like it's not, it's not a, a, an adequate question. I'm going to be pointing to my peer group. Poets like uh, Kenneth Goldsmith or Derek Beaulieu or, um, I don't know, in Canada, Gregory Betts or my friend Nick Montfort. These are people I, you know, I regard as, you know, foundational friendships, right? Darren Wurschler, um, Craig Dworkin, uh, a whole handful of, of guys, right, you know, who've, who've just been very, very supportive for decades. It's, you know, hard for me not to, you know, celebrate their um, work. I probably owe a great debt of gratitude to uh, the poet Charles Bernstein, the winner of the Bollingen Prize for Poetry. Um, he's probably the, the most important um, uh, mentor I've had in my life. And one of the few mentors who's not become a tormentor. I've had other, um, you know, poets to whom I've served as a kind of acolyte, you know, learning lessons from them and, and providing support. But uh, my relationship has soured with them. Um, you know, they've turned against me to some degree, you know, it's, it's, it, and for good reason, like the, 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 some, some mentors haven't been given a debt of gratitude that they have to pay forward. And I think that somebody like uh, Charles Bernstein has himself been well mentored and as a consequence has to pay it forward. He can't pay his mentor back, but he can pay it forward. And he's done that with numerous poets. He's been a very good uh, guide and a helpful personality. Like we're very, very supportive. Um, and I like, I like the, his character of diplomacy. Um, he's a very open uh, poet um, who ingratiates himself with a wide, diverse variety of, of practices, despite his own rigor as an experimental poet among, you know, the language movement. So I, I like him very much, and I appreciate his his support. He's a titan in my life for sure. Um, yeah, I have people like that, but there, there are numerous people like that, uh, you know, I, but I, I can point I can point to him as a kind of paternal figure for sure. He's, you know, what the, the Jewish dad I never had, right? <laughs> like, <it's, laughs> I, 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 I feel a, a paternal fondness for him. I like, really, really care about him, you know. Um, uh, but I have, you know, of course, uh, peer relationships, uh, you know, probably my most important friendship network includes people like, uh, among my male friends, Derek Beaulieu and and uh, Darren Worschler and Kenneth Goldsmith. I think these three people, you know, are very important. Uh, there are other poets, Gregory Betts and Nick Montfort and Craig Dworkin, who are very important. Um, I have lots of, uh, you know, uh, female friends, very, very important, uh, who um, uh, I've known for decades, who've been very supportive. Uh, my publisher, Alana Wilcox, very, very indebted to her good advice, sage advice. And she's probably among the few people who can really say negative things about me. <laughs> with it in a conversation you know that's right. awesome that you have so many people that can give you support um given given the nature given the nature of your task well yeah. well i wish there were more to be <laughs> frank like no I, I wish there were more because it feels to me very confined i'm a gregarious person despite my introversion i do have i can call upon some gregarity and i and i used to have a very larger like a much larger social network but it's become increasingly confined i mean you know, the the degree to which um there's fracture, fracturing of the poetry community along orthodoxies and ideological preconceptions that have become increasingly liberal. It's harder to, you know, maintain the the vastness of that network uh, without it breaking up a little bit, and that's hard. I have to say, I dislike that very much. Um, my my impulse these days is, of course, to be um, uh, indulging as much outreach as possible, right? To be as friendly as possible with as many people as I can be. If we look back to the early 20th century when there were those seven or so experimental movements, did we find, I don't actually know the history so much, 
did we find that there was a lot of social crossover between, let's say, the, you know, the left wing avant garde or the right wing avant garde um, in terms of ideology? Oh no, there, I mean, there, there were. There, I, I would say there was political divides. I mean, the thing is that um, in the history of poetry, there's not many right wing avant garde movies. There's only one or two, and certainly today, there, I would say there, there are no right wing poets really. I mean, well, like futurism. I guess depending on how you define it, right, or like accelerationism. Yeah, I would. I would say. I would say that if you're pointing to the Italian futurists, uh, uh, that's probably the right most it gets in the history of literature. Uh, a handful of uh, imagist modernists, you know, were right wing, but. Um, the, the, all, all of them, uh, were invested in, uh, the idea that poetry had a political dimension to it, um, that needed to be indulged. Um, I'm, I'm increasingly skeptical of this, uh, premise, uh, because of the damage I've seen it's done to people, uh, and to others in the community. So I'm, I'm less, I'm less, uh, um, uh, what, uh, impressed or, or charged by that, those ideas, but, um, each one of those uh, literary movements in the early 20th century uh, had a utopian vision for poetry as a contributing uh, feature of everyday life, that poetry was a way of life. And what I like about those movements is there was a great deal of transmission between poetry and other art forms. Like There was a, a willingness to reach out. So if you refer to a literary movement, you were also referring to an artistic movement. I mean, if, like in surrealism, for example, you have surrealist poets and surrealist painters, right? In Dadaism, you have Dadaist poets and Dadaist painters, right? Uh, in futurism, you have futurist poets and you have futurist painters, right? There's there's crossover among the visual arts and, and sculpture and plastic arts. Uh, they're all under the aegis of a, a large-scale umbrella in which there's connections amongst them. And unfortunately, that does not seem to have uh, persisted. By the time you get to the middle of the 20th century, there's detachment now. Uh, it's possible to create an artistic movement and the poets don't show up for it at all, right? They're just not there for it. Um, and it's possible for somebody like Brian Geisen to then say, you know, poetry's 50 years behind painting, right? That, that somehow there, that, that, that detachment has become so egregious that, that, uh, poetry has to relearn lessons that the artists have already learned and, and digested and, and abandoned, right? You know, like they rediscover them too late. My final question is about rules and religion. So as a, you know, I'm a rabbi and I, I, I follow rules. <laughs> I don't. I don't think of it that way, but that's that's true. Um, there are there are. But, but the rules give you meaning, don't they? Right, right. They do. Um, I keep the Sabbath, and I don't just rest. I I follow a um, a tradition that defines what rest is in a very intricate way. And um, you know, as you were talking about the the meaningfulness of rules, that's where I was going. I was just thinking about the religiosity of it. Um, uh, sure. Uh, but of course, uh, yeah. uh, but here's, here's the thing. Here's a big difference though, between, uh, you know, the rules I follow as a poet and the rules you might follow as a rabbi. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I can forswear them right at any time, right. I can, I can give them up, right. I can try them on for size. I can swap them out. Uh, uh, I mean, while I'm observing them, I observe them with immense conviction, right. And, um, it, you know, refuse to abandon them, but, um, they're not, um, they're not uh, uh, colored by faith. That's true. Um, but you it, did make a blood pact. You said sort of that you would, in fact, start. Well, uh, <laughs> if, if, if there's some if there's some overtone of religiosity to my convictions as a poet, it's the notion that uh, that language is resilient enough, versatile enough, powerful enough 
that it can transcend every attempt to confine it, constrain it, hobble it, um, uh, you know, hurt it. Like it, it seems somehow to figure out ways around uh, all of the forces that would curtail it. It figures out something you know, like it just seems to me there's a, a kind of uh, a caprice uh, at its at its heart. I mean, I, I, I've done things with language that I, I thought might not be possible. It would be impossible. But by simply sticking around long enough, I don't know, I burned up enough treasure. I don't know, made enough sacrifice <laughs> at, at the altar of a little god, a little deity, right? This tiny little microbe, right? You know, uh, that's a, a surreal microbe. Maybe, you know, it, that that deity has, you know, returned me with its favor and blessed me, of course, with, um, you know, the um, victory over its own uh, living being. Um, that's uh, my relationship to rules uh, in this respect is going to be different, I think, from from your religious convictions, which uh, I mean, I suppose you know, being a poet offers me purpose and, and perhaps uh, it might it might be enough purpose to prevent me from me killing myself in, the, in a, you know, in a nihilistic universe that doesn't appear to have much meaning. <laughs> Godless universe has no meaning. Whereas, of course, uh, you know, your faith, you know, uh, helps to short circuit some of that anxiety, doesn't it? Right. Like, I mean, you know, the conviction that God's, God's there and ready for you and waiting. Right. And that, and that you just have to be attuned to it and attentive. And those rules that you observe, right, demonstrate uh, what a, a degree of investment in the idea. Right. Like, like they show that, that you're worthy of having those convictions. Right. Yeah. Sure. I do think I do think you're right to point to the to the differences. Um, but on the flip side, sort of Kabbalistic um, tradition imagines God as somebody who plays with language. Yeah, this is, this um, is, the, this is why we, among the Abrahamic religions, I, I really have immense respect for Judaism. <laughs> because of this Kabbalistic tradition, this bit of mysticism about language and you know, the word of God and it's um, uh, the geometria, all, all of the you know kind of wonderful poetic overtones, right, to... Um, uh, to the religion, I, I I find very captivating. I have to say, like it's you know, <laughs> mm. anyway. yeah. So well, you know, you you're entitled to your disbelief. Um, of course, you don't need me to say that, but I find a lot of actually um, sympathy. Well, I don't know if I'm entitled to believe in a, in a Jewish God. Like I don't th- I don't think I, I don't think if I wanted to, I would be able to. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to. <laughs> It's a complicated, <laughs> complicated topic. You know, that's, that's think, a fascinating one. I, I don't think I, I can show up and convert, can I? Like, it's not. It's, on a on a personal level, I find the language poetry and the sort of delight in language to be a deeply revelatory uh, experience. One that, um, because of what you were saying before, going beyond the ego and touching something outside of yourself, however you want to figure that, it does for me feel like a sort of inkling of something beyond um, in a more... Well, I, I, I think that there's uh, some mystic truth to that, that, that uh, when poets are in the zone, uh, when you are immersed in your talent and uh, suffering from pycnolepsy, time just disappears. You're absolutely in the moment of expression, figuring out how to write. There, there is something blessed in all of that. And I mean that with its religious overtones, that, there, that you do feel that you've communed with a force larger than you, and you might um, be tempted to describe it as divine. Um, I don't. I don't dispute the merits of that. Uh, that feeling. Um, you know, it, it's not necessarily the way I would try to explain it for for myself, but I understand why people might be might be thoroughly um, hypnotized by that by that conviction. It, it would really be 
hard to dispute. It's not, it's not something easy to dispute. Um, and believe it or not, of course, every poet aspires to reclaim it. Like, like, you know, once you've experienced it, you, just, you don't want to let go of it. And of course it's ephemeral, right? It's truly, it's heredity. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, exactly. It's yeah, it's, it, it, you can't, you can't, uh, hold on to it for very long. And, uh, it, it, you might ruin it if you tried, I suppose, right? The ephemerality of it is probably one of the innate features of it. Christian, thank you for your time and thank you for all that you, all that you do. Oh, well, uh, thank, thank you for your willingness to have a, a you know, lengthy conversation with me. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.